Big box companies are really the the cause of a lot of the uh, economic distress in rural America. It's not that small businesses can't compete. They are encountering various forms of monopoly power, various ways in which big companies can muscle them out of the market. What we really need to do is to level the playing field. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm David Goldstein, Senior Fellow at Civic Ventures. We've spent a lot of time thinking about the economic decline of rural America. And if there's one thing we've become convinced of, it's that it wasn't inevitable. Over the past 40 years, we made policy choices that resulted in unprecedented levels of market concentration. And it is this outsized market power, particularly in retail, that has played a huge role in driving down wages and in destroying local businesses. Recently, I had the opportunity to talk with Stacy Mitchell, the co-director of the Institute for Self-Reliance, about how monopoly power is undermining rural economies and about the policies we need to revive them. I'm Stacy Mitchell. I am the co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. We're an organization that does research and develops policies and strategies to reverse corporate concentration and build thriving local economies and communities. Um, and I do a lot of research and analysis and writing about monopoly power, independent businesses, local economies, and Amazon. Uh, well, thanks for joining us. Um, it's uh, especially fun to have you here uh, on, on two counts. One is uh, we've been thinking a lot about uh, regional economic issues, uh, local issues recently, and, and how to address them. And also, it's fun for us to speak to somebody who's been described as the, quote, strategist of the demise of Amazon as we know it. How do you get that title? You know, I have been uh, watching Amazon for a very long time and originally got really concerned about the, how its ability to dodge having to collect sales tax was really powering its growth over, you know, lots of local uh, independent retailers. And over time, just, you know, looked at more and more of the company and became increasingly concerned about what Amazon, how Amazon was reordering our economy and the consequences of it. And also the fact that for a lot of years, people weren't really paying attention um, or weren't really seeing kind of underneath the, the facade, what Amazon was really doing. So I started, you know, writing uh, a lot about the company really beginning around 2015, 2016. We published a huge report in 2016 called Amazon Stranglehold which laid out a kind of case about the company's monopoly power and then looked at the consequences for independent businesses, workers, and communities. And, you know, since then have been able to talk to a lot of journalists, lawmakers, and others, uh, as well as other folks working, uh, other advocacy organizations, worker, racial justice, small business groups, um, and, you know, have helped build a movement of people who, who want to take on Amazon's power. You know, you, you you testified earlier this year that the root of rural America's distress is the 
the concentration of economic and financial power. And, and, and power is something we've talked uh, a lot about uh, on this podcast. Explain why this is so important, particularly in rural communities. You know, we have seen this just incredible consolidation across most sectors of the economy. You know, it began around 40 years ago, but it's really accelerated in the last uh, 10 years or so. You know, whether it's the retail sector, whether it's, you know, food and farming, I mean, all, all across the banking sector, all across the economy, there are fewer and fewer companies that control more and more of our uh, of our industries. And one of the consequences of that is that those companies uh, are putting, you know, their sort of higher wage jobs and their facilities in relatively few places. And lots of, as, as those companies have come to dominate, lots of smaller and mid-sized companies have simply disappeared. And what that's meant is that, you know, the, the you know, advertising uh, company in, that was a regional company in St. Louis, Missouri is now gone. The mid-sized manufacturer that had its uh, base of operations in rural North Carolina is now been swallowed up, and that facility has been closed. You know, all across the economy, we've seen this. We've seen independent small businesses disappear, fewer and fewer places where there are decent jobs, and then that what that the consequence of that is that there are lots of places that are being left behind. That includes large swaths of rural America, but it also includes some sort of cities like second tier cities that have been bypassed, you know, particularly in the Midwest and, and Northeast um, as part of this uh, economic consolidation. So we have a lot of regions that are really hurting and being left behind where people can't find good jobs, they can't succeed in starting businesses, there's no way to get into the middle class. Yeah, you know, for us uh, big city folk, we tend to think of rural America as nothing but farmland, but uh, historically that wasn't really the source of most of the jobs. Mm -hmm. it's yeah you get this hollowing out of local economies it it's uh, very different from the way it was 40 50 years ago this didn't start with amazon though did it no i mean it really started with a series of policy decisions um you know a series of policy decisions that uh, undermined our antitrust laws that helped consolidate the banking system. Um, these are decisions that were embraced by both Republicans and Democrats. Um, and the result of that is that we've got this incredibly consolidated economy uh, and have lost you know, tens of that, tens of thousands of, of, as I said, small businesses. You know, and as those companies have consolidated, they've also been able to use their power to hold down wages. You know, there's less mm -hmm. competition for labor. These big companies have a lot of political power. So as they've gained economic power, they've had more power in Congress and in state houses to rewrite let the rules, rewrite re regulation to favor their own interests. Um, and so this is really ultimately the result, not of something that's happened in markets per se, but really something that has happened in terms of the public policies that underlie how our markets are structured. Really, Walmart was the pioneer of this, <laughs> going into uh, rural communities and uh, becoming not just a dominant retailer, but a dominant employer, um, kind of paved the way for Walmart in this sense. Could you talk a little bit about the harm that Walmart has done to uh, communities? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the 1980s, federal policymakers just effectively turned antitrust policies on their head. Right. And, you know, prior to that, there had been uh, antitrust was was driven by this broad set of ideas about dispersing power, 
um, that we should have markets where there are lots of competitors, where power isn't concentrated in, in one, you know, a single entity. Um, those were the animating concerns of antitrust. They were broad. And in the 1980s, a kind of ideological uh, strain of thinking came along that I know you've talked about on this show before, but this idea that the only thing that really should matter is efficiency. And the idea baked into that was that big companies were more efficient and therefore we should stop considering anything but efficiency and ultimately low, low prices. Can they deliver low prices? And a consequence of that is that we removed a lot of the controls that had been in place to prevent middlemen, you know, essentially retailers from kind of using their position in, in between buyers, uh, shoppers, if you will, and producers from using that position that they had in the middle to, to, to really dominate the market. And so Walmart came along and took advantage of those changes in antitrust policy It engaged in rampant sort of predatory pricing coming into towns, offering low prices, selling goods below cost. And then when competing businesses that were too small, didn't have the financial resources to you know, run losses like that, went out of business, Walmart would raise its prices. Walmart would also go to big suppliers and say, you're going to give us huge discounts above and beyond what, you know, even the kind of volume would, would suggest. You're going to give us big discounts and you're going to raise prices on our retail competitors, this kind of waterbed effect. And that also, you know, was another example where Walmart won not by being better necessarily, or even being more efficient, but simply using its raw financial and market muscle to get its way at the expense of competing businesses, particularly independent retailers. So this was the formula. And there's it's no coincidence that Walmart's massive growth began in the 1980s, just as we were shifting antitrust law. Those two things go hand in hand. So Walmart marched across the country, opening these huge stores everywhere and very rapidly took over a huge segment of the retail market. And in particular, took over a big part of our grocery industry. Walmart captures right. one out of every $4 that Americans spend and has used that power really to reorganize how we produce food, to undermine lots of independent grocers and other local retailers, and to change the basic shape of our communities uh, in ways that have made those communities have a, a shrinking middle class, um, more you know, jobs are increasingly low paid and that you can't get by, you know, working at Walmart. Um, and it really gutted the heart and soul of a lot of these places. I mean, there is a kind of, you know, spiritual and social consequence of Walmart's takeover that I think has been really not, not well acknowledged. Yeah. Uh, Walmart used to have the slogan, always low prices. And of course the flip side to that is that it was always low wages. And I know there were, there were studies that showed uh, that when a Walmart went into a county for the first time, uh, wages dropped in the retail sector, uh, but specifically and even more so in the grocery sector, just across the board as uh, existing uh, local businesses, small businesses had to compete uh, with Walmart. The same, it turns out, is true for Amazon. When Amazon uh, opens a warehouse in the county, it turns out you know, they keep advertising how they're paying a $15 minimum wage. But when Amazon opens a warehouse in the county, wages for warehouse workers drop too. And I believe, is this true that half of American households now subscribe to Prime? 
Yeah, it's actually about 60% of oh my American God. households uh, subscribe to Prime. And, you know, and Prime is really Amazon's tool for, for monopolizing markets. You know, once someone signs on to Prime, it, you know, it's very ingenious. Um, you know, once someone signs on to Prime and they pay that $119, they, you know, you sort of naturally want to get the most value from it. And the way you get the most value from that money that you've laid out is by ordering more from Amazon, getting more free shipping, you know, um, and so that it's a psychological tool. Like the, 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 you know, Prime is a money loser for Amazon. They lose a lot of money on Prime, um, but getting customers to pay that money is a key to kind of locking people into Amazon's ecosystem. And then once you have sixty percent of of consumers, what what happens is, you know, most Americans now because of Prime when they want to buy something online, you know, they're not going to a search engine and saying, oh, you know, I'm looking for running shoes and typing that in and they'll get, you know, results from Amazon, but they'll get results from other retailers, including local retailers. Instead of doing that, they're just starting on Amazon. And so if you're a company that makes or sells anything and you want to reach consumers online, you have to go through Amazon. You know, for a long time, we really, you know, we mistook Amazon uh, as a retailer, we thought Amazon was a retailer. And I think this is part of how for, you know, many, many years, 20 more or more years, you know, policymakers and the American public kind of didn't recognize the threat that Amazon posed because we didn't really recognize what it was that Jeff Bezos was building. And what he was really building was essentially, you know, his goal was to, to be the infrastructure for the economy to essentially create the online platform through which other businesses you know, had to go if they wanted to reach the market, you know, essentially a kind of railroad, if you will, you now have to sell on Amazon's platform if you want to reach the market. And if you think about it, you know, the retail piece is only one part of this infrastructure, Amazon through AWS, you know, its infrastructure is much of the infrastructure that, that runs the internet, all sorts of other companies, government agencies run all of their uh, operations and their data on AWS. You look at voice, Alexa dominates the voice market. So this is you know, increasingly the way that people are, are interacting with the web and also uh, interacting with various goods and services, interacting with their appliances, their smart homes. You know, we're seeing Alexa in offices. This is a new platform. And by, by controlling these critical pieces of infrastructure, what Amazon has gained, what Jeff Bezos has built is this ability to have a kind of godlike view of everything that is going on. It can see what goods are selling, which businesses are, are selling what products online. It can see what's happening across the cloud, uh, everything that's connected to voice. And it can use that power to both identify you know, strategic advantages and give its own products superior placement on that infrastructure, pick off the best ideas of other companies and copy them. Um, and also it can uh, levy essentially a kind of tax on all of this other economic activity through the fees that it charges. You know, Amazon generates a lot of its revenue now comes from the tolls essentially that right. uh, businesses selling on its marketplace pay, that companies using AWS pay. I mean, it's a massive machine for uh, consolidating power across the economy and generating extraordinary revenue by, you know, basically muscling other companies and being able to take a cut of everything that they sell. This raises the issue of antitrust again. You mentioned before how the way we, it's not really the antitrust laws that changed, just the way we interpreted them. Uh, they, they used to be interpreted 
in a way that uh, the focus was on preventing outsized market power and concentration. And at some point it got reinterpreted to, well, always low prices, that if it was good for consumers, it was good for the economy. But you mentioned just now the idea of comparing Amazon to a railroad. And the railroads were regulated as common carriers. That is uh, an, uh, another big part of our uh, antitrust law. In your opinion, is the solution to break up Amazon? Is it to regulate it as a as a common carrier, as a kind of utility, uh, or is it some combination of the two? Yeah, it's really both. We need both. Um, so I think that we need to split Amazon up into several companies. Um, you know, we need to split up its marketplace, uh, its online shopping platform, as a separate company from Amazon as a retailer. Because right now you have a situation where Amazon, you know, is operating the marketplace and then also selling its own goods on that marketplace. And of course, that's a huge conflict of interest. I think we also need to separate AWS because AWS, you know, in part, it's it's one of the cash cows that Amazon uses to cross subsidize strategic losses in other parts of its company uh, in order to maintain its monopoly power. You know, and we also need to cleave off Amazon's logistics. You know, Amazon has now built a a shipping operation that rivals mm -hmm. UPS and the, and the postal service. So I think we need to split up Amazon into at least five companies. Those would be fairly large companies, but they would be broken up along business line. And that's really crucial because when you look at how Amazon leverages its market power to strong arm companies um, and small businesses, what you see is that it's it's often leveraging power in one division to gain an upper hand in another. That right. the, the power comes from that integration across business lines. So if you break Amazon up, you force each of those companies to have to compete on their own merits. So you've got a shipping operation that has to really compete with UPS and the postal service can't just say to its third-party sellers, you have to use our shipping service, which is what's happening right now. You know, instead they got to compete. They got to compete on price and service. You know, similarly, you get a retail operation that, you know, would be something like a new target. And again, would really have to compete. Couldn't just use its control over a marketplace to advantage its own products. Um, so there's a lot of benefits to breaking Amazon up. And I think is a really central or essential part of solving it. But then within that, we do have to look at pieces of it that, as you noted, rise to this level of being kind of critical infrastructure for other companies. And certainly the online platform, the shopping platform, uh, the marketplace falls into that category um, because of that 60 plus percent of Americans who are starting their shopping there. It is essential infrastructure if you want to get to market. And that requires, you know, we've long known, as, as you mentioned, with the railroads and, and with other uh, kinds of services that are similar infrastructure services, you need a higher standard, you need a, a public oversight and regulation. And so often what we have done is, is required those types of companies to not discriminate, to offer service at fair rates for all of the companies that wanna use their infrastructure. And we need to do that as well with Amazon. Let's talk a bit more about how communities and small businesses are starting to fight back. It's a, it's a really great question. You know. One of the consequences for local communities of Amazon's really outsized power is that we have lost over the last 10 years, tens of thousands of independent small businesses, 
not only retailers, but we've lost a lot of small manufacturers and producers who've really been squeezed um, and driven out of the market by Amazon's practices. We conducted a national survey in 2019 and found that Amazon is basically the top threat facing independent businesses, um, according, according to small businesses across the country. You know, this for many communities, what this means is that there are disappearing local businesses, disappearing local jobs. It's harder and harder now to start a small business and succeed. If you're somebody looking for a job in a local economy, you have fewer and fewer opportunities of where to work. And those you know, wages are, are really falling because of Amazon's market power, its ability to set low wages, not only in the warehousing sector, but across lots of other parts of the economy. So a lot of the kind of economic despair and hardship that we're seeing in many places, you know, Amazon is a, is a central part of that, a part of that story. And I would also say, you know, I think more and more, you know, and this is true of Amazon, but just general of, of kind of corporate power of monopoly power in our economy, you know, there's a sense among many Americans that we no longer control our own destiny, you know, that our government is overrun by these big companies, that our ability to operate, you know, as sort of free citizens in the world is really compromised by the economic power that these companies have and the political power that they have. And so there's a way in which, you know, this really goes straight to the heart of the fraying of our democracy and the consequences that that has for how we relate to one another and the well-being of our uh, local communities and our families. Um, and, you know, a lot of the stuff you're talking about isn't just uh, theoretical. You talk about businesses disappearing. The rate of uh, new business formation uh, has been dropping for the past 20 years. And this is uh, particularly true in rural businesses where the concentration of large employers is, is counterintuitively larger than it is in, uh, in big cities. L let's talk a little bit about the solutions. Uh, we love to ask the benevolent dictator question. <laughs> uh, if you were the benevolent dictator, what would be your response? The, the good news is that there is a growing anti-monopoly movement. And in particular, you know, small business groups uh, through, through a coalition that we helped found Small Business Rising um, are now working really hard to help members of Congress really understand the consequences of monopoly power for local economies and, and what to do about it. And I think part of the answer is that we, you know, we need to take specific steps to address the power of tech companies. There's a set of legislation in Congress that would do this, the big tech bills that passed out of the House Judiciary Committee earlier this year. Um, we hope to see those bills brought to the floor uh, soon. Uh, those bills would, would break up big tech, including Amazon, would impose a number of uh, regulations and limits on how they operate um, that I think are really important. But then we also need to resurrect and, and reinvigorate our antitrust policies more broadly. We need to bring back a sense that you know, antitrust's role is to is to create healthy, vibrant markets um, and that we need much more aggressive policies, not only to stop mergers that don't make any sense, but also to look at places like Walmart, for example, where you've got this outsized behemoth that is really direct, you know, uh, uh, you know, having a real effect on farmers, the food system, uh, and, you know, and, and lots of other sectors of our economy. So we need to bring back antitrust. We need to look at our tax policy. There are lots of ways in which we 
have these huge loopholes that big companies, Amazon, for example, pays, you know, the last few years, they've paid effectively no federal income tax. You know, meanwhile, the local business down the street from you is paying an effective rate of around 25% of their of their income in taxes. Like that's just grossly unfair and explains part of the imbalance in our economy. But lastly, I would say in a big part of what my, my organization does is we develop local policies that cities can do to, to build uh, local businesses, to build their local economy. And there's a lot of tools at that local level. We are indeed seeing lots of towns thinking about what do we do to help support people in getting financing to start businesses, what do we do to help create um, the kind of built environment where those businesses can be successful? There are a lot of tools at that level as well. You know, I'm going to channel Nick here since he's not in on this conversation. I'm sure he would raise this policy idea uh, if he were here. One of the things we've talked about is the idea of holding larger employers to higher standards that an Amazon or a Walmart, because they're a super large company, would pay a higher minimum wage and be required to provide um, more expensive benefits to their employees than would say a small local business. Do you think there's a role for that in revitalizing rural economies? Yeah, I've actually read Nick's writing on this and and I I disagree with him. Um, You know, what we hear from independent businesses and what we see in our research is it it's not that they can't compete small businesses are are highly competitive and they often outperform big businesses i mean there are a lot of sectors of the economy where our research has demonstrated this independent pharmacies have lower prices and and better service according to consumer reports and lots of other research that's been done and yet independent pharmacies are losing ground to cvs and and walmart We see this in broadband. I mean, the highest speed, lowest cost broadband providers in the country are for the most part all small. They are not the big companies. Um, We see this in lots and lots of sectors of the economy. It's actually kind of a myth. You know, when we see small businesses disappear, you know, our kind of the ideology that has kind of crept into all of our thinking over the last you know, few decades is this notion that bigger is always better. And so we see small businesses close and we think, oh, well, they just couldn't compete. They couldn't keep up. They're not as efficient. And that's not true at all. Um, you know, you go looking and as we have done in our work and one sector after the other, you see that it's not that small businesses can't compete. And as I said, often actually outperform on really key metrics, but that they are encountering various forms of monopoly power, various ways in which big companies can just muscle them out of the market or cut off their access to key supplies or arbitrarily raise their prices that they have to pay for goods. And it it is those issues that are really uh, the problem. It is the unlevel playing field of having to pay a 25% federal income tax when Amazon, your biggest competitor, gets off paying nothing. That's the issue for them. They, you know, independent businesses in many sectors um, actually pay higher wages. Uh, This is certainly true in retail, the the area that I've studied the most. Small retailers on average pay higher wages than big companies like Walmart does. They're perfectly capable and, and I think should absolutely treat their employees well, treat their communities well, follow high standards in terms of workplace issues, in terms of environmental policies. Um, What we really need to to do is to level the playing field um, and let them naturally outcompete while being good community citizens, because that's what they're capable of doing. 
Yeah, I think I think too often we get locked into this vision of the old economy. It used to be true uh, that large corporations there was a there was a wage premium working for large corporations, but that was true in white collar and manufacturing work. It's it's never really been true in retail. I, I actually wrote a piece about this a few years ago, and you know if you really start to actually break down that data about that notion that big companies pay more than small companies what you find is that there's a lot of wrinkles that totally change the story. So one example of that is that when we see that, it's often the average wage for a big company mm -hmm. that we're looking at. And it's, it's averaging in those really high salaries for the folks at the very top, the CEOs, the other executives, the top management. And if you look, the median employee in that company and, the, and particularly the lower uh, tiers of wages in that company, those folks, um, you know, there's no difference or small businesses actually pay more. So once you take off those really high paid executives that are tilting the average, what you find is that small businesses are on par, even uh, in some sectors pay more uh, than big companies do. And the other thing that's interesting is that I think it's really notable when you look at the history over the last, say, 100 years or so, that the period of time in which working Americans were doing well in terms of median wages being relatively high and unionization rates going up, so that period of time from the late 1930s through the 40s, 50s, and 60s, is also a period when small businesses are booming and have a growing market share in many sectors. And then you hit the 1970s, and we see both union rates and wages decline as well as small businesses. And so I think that there's a different relationship between small businesses and the well being of working people than the one that we currently imagine. That is an economy in which big corporations are sort of held in check and independent small businesses are able to succeed, is also an economy in which workers have relatively more power and are able to secure higher wages and also, you know, have the, the political power to get higher minimum wage legislation and other kinds of workplace legislation passed. So I think we really need to rethink this kind of misunderstanding, in my view, around small business and its relationship to the well-being of labor and working people. So if uh, our listeners wanted to help you in your uh, effort, how do they get involved? Yeah, you know, I, I I'm a big fan of e-commerce. We're not uh, we're not looking to change <laughs> the fact that you can get stuff delivered to your front door. Everyone loves that. I th I just think that we need to live uh, we need to move towards an economy in which we have access for all kinds of businesses to do that successfully and not a market that's totally cornered by a single company. Um, so the way to get in touch with us is we're the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can go to ilsr.org, our website. I encourage people in particular to sign up for our independent business newsletter. Like that's the best place to keep track of some of the work we're doing on Amazon and Monopoly Power in general. And then I also want to say, if you're a business, uh, are you uh, know folks who own an, or, or work at, at small businesses please consider joining Small Business Rising. This is a growing coalition that's pushing for um, Congress to make changes to our antitrust policy and to really rein in the power of Amazon and other big companies. And of course, uh, there will be links in the show notes if, you want, if uh, listeners want to click through. And uh, now we're down to our, our, our final question, Stacey. Why do you do this work? You know, I grew up in a place that was very much um, kind of 
marginalized. Um, so I grew up in Portland, Maine, um, in the 1980s and 90s, and it was a place that was really struggling. That had you know lots of people struggling to get by. Most of the storefronts downtown were empty, um, and I, you know, just had a sort of I sure very very much valued the idea of of living in places that were vibrant and healthy where people knew their neighbors, where your community felt democratic, felt like it controlled its own future, had sort of the ability to, to, to direct where things were, go were going for, for your local place. And there are a lot of ways in which the, you know, when I was growing up, Portland was very much um, at the kind of losing end of a lot of external power. And uh, that led me to study history, I was interested in how things change. And I was interested, I studied labor history, the history of social change movements, um, and then was fortunate enough to find uh, work, um, you know, helping to uh, kind of advocate for shifting how we do policy and how the economy works. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.